How's everybody doing? Good. So let's begin this morning with a quick review over some things that we have been teaching over these last several weeks. So this is our fifth, sixth week. I'm going to say fifth. Uh, week in going through complementarian theology. So let's talk about some things that we've learned. Uh, week one, we talked about God's good design. Right? We talked about how men and women, we are equals as image bearers in God's creation, but that we are complements in our function and in our roles together. Uh, that we have uh, complementary features. Week two, we talked about how this good design of God has been broken by sin. We looked at some of the, the curses that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden and the, the effects of what happened when they ate the fruit and, and even that process of how they got to that point where they took a bite. How men, as a result, tend to become more passive and we sit back or we become too domineering and aggressive and abusive. Now, we saw that women now have this desire because through the serpent, Adam's authority was subverted and, and went around. Women now have a desire to rule over their husbands and struggle up under the, the burden that God has given them as, as wives and as women. Uh, in week three, we talked about the question, what is a man? You remember our three features? What is a man, biblically? General, general. general something. You said that last week. General, <laughs> general strength. <laughs> general strength. What's another one? Humble, protective, humble leadership, and selfless sacrifice. Thank you. We got them. Uh, week four, we talked about what is a woman, and Paige led uh, the discussion on biblical womanhood. Do you remember her three? Fearless, hope, internal beauty, and willful. Submission. See, it's there. You just need some help. Last week, what did we talk about? Do you remember what we talked about last week? Yes, men and women in the home. Gender roles in the home. And so we talked about husbands, how husbands are called in Ephesians 5 to love their wives. And this love is an all-encompassing, sacrificial love. Uh, we talked about how women, our wives, are called to submit and respect their husbands. And how we talked about children who are called to honor and obey their parents. So, overall, six weeks. Has this study been helpful to you, encouraging, convicting? Do you think that you're starting to understand complementary theology? Hopefully so. Because today's lesson is, by all accounts, a test. Here's, here's how we know whether or not we understand complementarian theology is when we talk about how this plays out in the church. We can understand and we can agree on certain things and as male and female and man, men and women. But when we take all of this that we've talked about and we bring it into the church, this is often where most of the most of our standings on complementarian theology either hold firm or break down. And so this morning is. A test. Whether or not you grasp the complementary nature of men and women will become evident when you discuss how men and women complement one another in the church. So let's mix up our opening discussion a little bit. I, I like to begin by asking some, some fun questions. 
Let's mix it up a little bit. My fun question for you this morning is what are some what are some of the hardest passages of scripture in your opinion? And you don't have to give me like specific references. You can give me stories or or that one verse that says this. Or even entire books. What are some of the hardest parts of scripture? How about it? The one in um, Genesis where God is sorry that he made man. Yeah. Yeah. Genesis 6, right? He looks at the sin of mankind and it says that God was sorry that he had made man. That's good. What else? <laughs> yeah, that's hard for itself. Easy to understand, hard to apply. Yeah, it's good. What else? Okay, a lot of the Proverbs. And Job. Yeah. Yeah, Job, Job brings its own level of difficulty. And there's, there's levels of that one. Yeah, yeah, it's good. What about Revelation? Everybody, everybody comfortable? Want to want to leave that one out? That one's not a difficult one at all, is it? Or or we could go into the Old Testament. Maybe maybe Leviticus. Anyone have Leviticus as their favorite book to study in Scripture? When is it time to kill? When is it time to kill? When God says to. Um, right. Yeah, uh, we could go into how about the, the New Testament where in, I think it's in Matthew's gospel when Jesus is raised from the dead on Easter Sunday. It also says that other people were also raised from the dead. And you have this like biblical zombie apocalypse that happens at, at Easter. We don't really talk about that much, do we? Or about the prophets. When's the last time you read Daniel and actually didn't stop when the narrative ended? Right, Daniel is broken up into these two big sections where you have the, the story part, and it's the stories that we all love, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and Daniel and the lion's den, and, and all of this great part. And then you get to the second half of the book, and it's, I saw someone like the Son of Man with goats and horns and rain, I mean, and it's all prophecy and strange end times stuff. I mean, there's, there's as you can see, clearly a lot of difficult passages and parts of God's word. Things that we struggle to understand, things that we wrestle with, things that are just, whether they don't make sense or they're harder to apply and live in light of, there are levels of difficulty when we come to parts of scripture. This morning, I want to point your attention and for us to study a passage of scripture that I believe is one of the hardest in the New Testament, if not all of Scripture. And in fact, it's one of those passages of Scripture that many people even get uncomfortable just with the idea that they are going to have to read this publicly. So, it's a hard one. I'm saying that from the beginning. But I want us to look at it together and keep in mind together that this is God's Word. It does not change. It is His Word. So, grab a Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Everybody there? 1 Timothy 2? Still looking? It's okay, you are. 
All right. I, I want to make sure that we're all there. I don't want to leave anybody behind because I, I need us all to see this together. So will somebody read 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8 and going all the way down through verse 15? Any takers? All right. Thank you. 8 through 15. Read it loud for us, Reagan. I desire then that at every place the men should pray with the holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then he. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Thank you. Everyone understand now why this is a hard one? What makes this passage difficult? Okay, our culture is a big part of this, yes? What, what about this passage is hard, specifically? What do you see here in these verses that is hard? It makes women less Okay, yeah, it does. You read this and you think, well, why, why can't a woman teach? Why does she have to be quiet? Yeah, what else? Being saved through childbearing, right? That's hard. Does that mean that women's salvation is different than men's? We'll talk about this. But this is hard. What else? But it's still about mutual respect for both. Okay. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yep. What... I think one of the, the, I think all of this that we've talked about so far is difficult. I also think the verse 13 and 14. How does, how does that read? How does it feel? Or on whom does it feel that God is placing the blame for, for all of sin? Yeah. Women, and, and essentially, and this is, this is an interpretation. This is a way that you can read this. And we're going to correct this and, and go through it. But you could read this as Paul saying the reason that women are not allowed to teach in the church is because it's women's fault that mankind is broken. Well, Adam was deceived too. He didn't have to eat it. I, I agree, but that's, that's not what he's saying here. Yeah, I know, but he's lying. <laughs> right, we will, we will. Right, right. So we'll, we'll come in, we'll, let's, let's jump into it. Let's break it up. Paul gives instructions for men in the church, and he gives instructions for women in the church. So let's start with the men. What does Paul command men to do in church? Pray. Specifically how? Perfect. Holy hands without anger, without quarreling or disputing. And where, where should they pray? Everywhere. Okay, so, so if we break down this, this verse and these different phrases, we get every place, which means men should pray and lead the church in prayer wherever the church is meeting. Again, keeping in mind the context of this, of this time, 
The church didn't meet in a big sanctuary or in a temple. They met in homes and often in various homes that changed week to week to week, depending on who was available and who could host and and how this worked. And so Paul says in every place, no matter whose home you're meeting in, the men should be the ones leading the church in prayer. Okay, he says lifting up holy hands. What does that mean? Okay, yeah, there's, there's an aspect of, of worship in prayer. What does the word holy mean? What, what, what are some other connotations or other synonyms for the word holy that we can use to apply here? Clean yes, clean, set apart. Others? Non-sinful. Devout. Devout. There's one more I'm, I'm looking for. You're, you're circling it. Sacred. Sacred. Not that one. Start. Not not perfect, but another one that starts with a P. Righteous. Not righteous. Pure. Purity. Right? Like holy things are pure things. And, and Jessica hit on this uh, with this cl- cleanliness, right? Like this, that when Paul says, I command, I desire them that the men should pray lifting up holy hands. What he is saying is that men, as you pray in leadership, you do not pray sinfully. Or selfishly, but you set the example in your prayers by praying in purity, which we understand. I I don't know about your prayer life, but I know that mine has been greatly impacted over the years when I am not living in purity. When I'm not living in pursuit of holiness, prayer is often the first thing to be thrown out the window. And if men are called to lead the church in prayer and to do so in purity... Then it means that there's an aspect of the men. Here's another example, another way that we are called to lead the church by setting examples in purity. And then the last one, the last qualification of how men should pray without anger or quarreling. What does this mean? is it or difficult is it to pray for people that you're mad at or that you're fighting with spouses any of you want to want to stand up and share testimony of how great a prayer you are for your spouse when they are beyond frustrating (laughs) we got a nod it It does make it difficult right it it makes it hard to, to pray for someone that you're mad with and fighting with And again, just like purity causes our prayers to be weak or even absent, anger and quarreling causes our prayers to be absent. We don't pray for people that we're mad at. Not a lot. And if we're in the middle of a dispute and a fight, the last thing we want to do is stand up and lead the church in prayer. So, men, we are called to lead the church in prayer, to do so everywhere, to do so in purity, and to do so peacefully. Without anger, fighting. Now, before moving on here, I, I think that as, as, as your pastor, let me speak in light of this. I think that in light of this passage, we have a glaring weakness in our church. Of men who are praying and leading the church in prayer. I don't, I, I'll be the first to say, I don't mind praying. 
Right? I, I don't mind leading the church in prayer because as a pastor, it is part of what God has called me to do. But I am not the only one capable of leading the church in prayer. And, and it, is, it is something that I, I think that we, as especially the men of the church, need work in. Men, you need to be more comfortable praying in public and leading the church by doing this. And what I have found is that most of the time, the men who are uncomfortable leading the church in prayer are the same ones who are failing to lead their families in prayer. It's the same thing. If the church is the family, then pray and lead the family in prayer, just like you do at home. And if you're uncomfortable with doing it at church, start practicing at home. And let it be a stepping stone because the church needs men who lead in prayer. Sound good? All right. Now let's get to the fun stuff. Women in the church. What does Paul command the women to do? To be quiet. <laughs> to think about what you put on. But not too much. But not too much. Right. Yes. Right. You're allowed to think about it, just not talk about it. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Right. Right. Sorry. There are jokes aplenty in a passage like this. We will we will try to contain them. All right. What else? So uh, modesty, quietness. What else are women commanded to? Do good works. Yeah. What else? Yeah. There's a good crossover here, I think, because this is uh, not to let women or teachers assert authority over, you know, men. Right. But that's in the corporate context, in the corporate worship context. And it says, like, and I was looking at the first Corinthians, mm-hmm. it says some women, when you prophesy. Yep. But it said you can't talk into it. Right. Like, but it means, like, when we go, but then the, um, the rest thing, that, that supersedes both of them. It's not, it, it, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> Justin, causing problems right there? Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I agree. We'll, we'll come to that because I think it's an it's important distinction. So, so here's, here's what I want to do. I want us to look at the three difficult words or phrases for women and unpack them. What do they mean? And I think there's three that our eyes and that we typically get hung up the most on. And those three words are quietness, not to teach, and not to exercise authority. I think those are the three buzzwords of the passage. So let's explain them quietly. Does anyone have other translation? My, my translation, the ESV, says of verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Does anyone have a different translation that reads that verse differently? Yeah. All right, what you got? Give, give me one of them. This one says, I don't let women take over and tell the men what to do. Okay. Others. Other other versions out there? Anybody have one? Learn in silence with all submission. Learn in silence with all submission. That's that's a closer to the, the, the literal translation from the Greek. The word here for quietness is is silence. And this is why it's uncomfortable. To tell to tell women that you are to learn in silence makes it makes me squirm. That can't be what Paul means, can it? 
that when a woman walks through the doors of the church, she is to zip her lip and not utter a sound? That can't be it. (laughs) I I agree. I I think that when we read it in this light, I, I think that that's hard. Now, here's the thing. We've heard this word, quietness, silence. We've already talked about this word previously in previous weeks of this study. You remember 1 Peter's passage where he tells women to adorn themselves with the internal beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit, which is precious in God's sight. We, we see in 1 Timothy, if you actually go back up a few verses, say in the same chapter, chapter 2, Paul uses the same word, quietness or, or silence. He uses it other places. Look at verse 2 of the same chapter. He says, for kings... He's asking, he's encouraging them to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a quiet, a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You see, the quietness that Paul refers to here is not absolute silence, but contented peacefulness. And there's a difference. There is it is a, a peaceful quietness. And again, Paige talked about this a couple weeks ago where, where she talked about why, why quiet, a quiet spirit is precious in God's sight. Because loud people have to be heard. They are loud because they need you to hear them and they need to know that they are heard. The reason that a, a woman who has a gentle and quiet spirit is precious in God's sight is because she is trusting in the promises and the provisions of God. And she doesn't have to be heard because she knows that she is. She doesn't feel the need to express her opinion on every single opinion and thought out there because she knows that she is heard by the one who matters. And so Paul, like Peter, Peter said this about wives in the home. Paul is saying it about women in the church. He is saying that you ladies should be peacefully content with what God has provided for you in the church and as you are in the home. And you should be peacefully content with the place that God has called you to be. King James says, let women learn in silence with all subjection. Right. Same word as, as submissiveness. The, the quietness here that Paul refers to is not silence. It is not zip your lip when you walk through those doors. But it is the kind of quietness that honors the leadership that God has put over the family of God. It is, it is a quietness that honors the leadership of the men that God has called to oversee his family. And I think we have to see the similarity here between women in the church and wives in the home. Wives, are, are you called to be silent in your homes? Are you called to not have an opinion on any, any matter, that to just let your husbands do all the thinking and talking for the both of you? No. You are, called to, you are still called to a willful submission, to, to trusting and to honoring and to respecting your husbands as the, the leaders of your family that God has called them to be. But that does not mean you do it silently. Submission does not equate with silence. And as we understand the church to be the family of God, we see these roles for women in similar lights. 
Wives, you are called to submit to your husbands. That means that you you can share opinions and you can share thoughts and give voice to your concerns, but doing it respectfully, right? In the same way, women in the church can share thoughts and can share opinions and, and can have a voice and be heard, but to do it while respecting the authority that God has put over the church. Women are not called to silence. Let me say that very clearly. That is not what this word implies or means. It is just the best we can do at a translation of a, of a difficult Greek word. And while you are not called to silence women, you are called to trust and to honor and to respect the leadership that God has placed over you in the church. Second buzzword of the passage. Teaching. I do not permit a woman to teach, is what Paul says. Now, the biggest question that arises with this word is, how extensive is this prohibition? Are we talking all forms of teaching or a specific form of teaching? Does, does Paul mean that, that women cannot teach Sunday school, that they cannot teach children's story, that they cannot teach small groups, or, or any other area or form of teaching that is done within the church? You are not allowed to teach, period, women. Is that what Paul's saying? No, not a bit. So there must be a specific kind of teaching that Paul is referring to here. And I don't think Paul is prohibiting all forms of teaching for women. I think this would contradict many other places of Scripture, especially in the New Testament. And, and Ryan has pointed out some of these. But let me just highlight some. Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Paul commands he doesn't encourage, he doesn't say, if this happens in your church, he commands women to teach. He says, older women are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working hard, working at home, excuse me, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Paul commands it. Older women, you are to teach the younger women. It's commanded. Second Timothy, one letter later, chapter three, Paul reminds Timothy himself, who is the pastor of this church in Ephesus. He reminds him of where he learned the truth of God's word. How many of you remember the story of Timothy? Who was it that taught Timothy the scriptures? Not Paul. His mother and his grandmother. Timothy's father wasn't wasn't a believer. He wasn't even a Jew. But Timothy's mom was. And it was his mother and his grandmother who taught him the scriptures. And Paul holds these two women out to Timothy and says, don't you forget where you learned this stuff. These women God used to teach you. And it's good that they did. And then we see in Acts, and we talked about this, this particular lady last week in our sermon in Romans, Priscilla. In Acts chapter 18, Priscilla, we, uh, it says in Acts 18... When Priscilla and Aquila, her husband, heard Apollos, they took him and expounded to him the way of God more accurately. Apollos was this young up-and-coming evangelist and preacher who had some things wrong, as many young up-and-coming preachers often do. He just missed the mark on a few things. And so Priscilla and her husband Aquila heard him speaking and said, he needs help. And so they took him back to their house and they taught him and corrected him. So that he could be better used and be better equipped. These examples show that Paul is not giving us a blanket prohibition against all forms of teaching that women can do. 
Men and women are both called, for example, to obedience in the Great Commission, which says, as we say every week, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. That is not just for the men. That is for men and women. You are to teach others to obey what Christ has commanded. Paul told the Colossian church, both men and women, to be teaching and admonishing one another as the word of Christ dwelt in them richly. And as, as Ryan pointed out in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul even seems to allow for women praying and prophesying in public worship. But his encouragement in that passage is that when they do this, and if they do this, they do it with proper humility and submission to the leadership of the church. Here's the thing. There are women who are gifted at teaching. And women who are gifted by God in teaching should use those gifts in the church to teach. But not in the role of elder. That's the specific requirement. That's the specific area of, of prohibition that Paul is speaking about here. If you read the next chapter of this letter, Paul provides qualifications for elders and for deacons. And the one distinction between these two offices in the church is that elders be able to teach. Deacons do not have to be able to teach. Elders do. You have to be able to teach to be an elder. And when we pair this word teaching, that we see this buzzword that we see in 1 Timothy 2, when we look at the very next phrase, exercise authority over men, we come to understand that Paul has in mind a specific kind of preaching done in a specific role in the church, that women are prohibited from Taking part. And that's the third buzzword, this authority. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. That's how we understand the specific teaching that Paul is, is, is referring to. The elders of the church are given two primary responsibilities in Scripture. Elders govern the church and they teach the church. Elders lead the church with the authority of God because God has called them to leadership. And elders teach with the authority of God because elders teach the word of God. Their authority as elders in both governing and teaching comes directly from God. I do not stand here as a pastor and as an elder of this church because I am worthy of it or because I deserve it. But it is because God has appointed me to this position and he has given me his authority to teach and to lead. And I do it in his name, not for mine. And it's the same for all of our elders. And again, we, we talked about this in our first week of complementary theology. This is not a question of competency or capability. This is not saying that women cannot teach because they don't know how. This is not a question of capability. It is a question of responsibility. Who is responsible for this job? Not who's able to do it, but who should do it. Who is God called to do it? And God has specifically called men to lead their families in their homes and the families of God in the churches. Women make good teachers. I have, I have zero problems making that as abundantly clear as I can. We have plenteous examples, both from Scripture and from church history. About women teaching and teaching well. But the question about women as elders is a question, again, of responsibility. Who does God call to this role? 
God calls husbands to the responsibility of leading their families. God calls men to the responsibility of leading the church as elders. Elders are the leaders of the church. Therefore, the responsibility of leadership rests on the men. But before we move on, let me provide two questions that I think can help us better apply this passage to our women who teach. And some, some boundaries, some frameworks that can help us make sure that we are living in obedience to Scripture as we encourage women to teach. When a woman teaches, whether it be Sunday school, whether it be children's story, whether it be here, whether it be in small group, when a woman teaches, is she teaching as one who has authority or teaching as one who is under authority? And there's a big difference. When I stand in the pulpit before you every, every week and, and bring to you God's word, I am speaking as one with authority. But I do it because I, I'm bringing the authority from God's word. This is true. And you need to hear it and believe it and live in light of it. And as your pastor and your elder, I'm doing it with the authority God has given me. When a woman teaches, whether in, in whatever form that, that is, and this doesn't just apply to women, but it applies to all men and women of the church who are not elders. When you teach, you teach under authority. If you are not an elder, you teach under the authority of the elders. Which means, quite simply, this. If you teach something that gets you in trouble, you're safe. The elders are there to protect you, to, to guard against problems and, and de debates and divisions that may arise from some of the things that come up in Scripture, like this. And one of the reasons that I have not asked anyone else to teach on this passage is because it is my duty to teach and to lead and to show you what God's word says. And so women are encouraged to teach. Men who are not elders are also encouraged to teach. But both are called to teach under the authority of the elders. And for women, when you do this. When you, when you use the gifts that God has given you in teaching, you are not trying to lead the church through your teaching. This is not a, a get permission from the elders before you speak in public sort of thing. But this is a way to encourage the women and to encourage all of our non-elder teachers to remember the authority that God has placed over you in the church. And, and, and this applies to men and women. You teach under the authority of the elders, not in place of or outside of. So an example of this. I, I think that, that Beth Moore is a very gifted teacher. I think that she knows the Bible incredibly well and without a doubt has been given the gift of teaching. And I personally know many men and women who have benefited from her teaching over the years. Now, I'm, I say this, I'm not her pastor, I am not her elder, I am not in authority over Beth Moore. But one of the biggest concerns I have regarding Beth Moore's teaching ministry is that she does not seem to teach under the authority of any elder. But she teaches as one with authority. And this flies against God's word. And while God has clearly given her the teaching from my outside, very distant, very limited perspective into Beth Moore's life. She teaches from a position of authority that she should not have. Because it's not hers to hold. 
So that's the first one. When a woman teaches, is she teaching as one with authority or is or teaching as one under authority? Second framework question. When a woman teaches, is she reinforcing God's good design of men and women or is she working against it? When a woman teaches, is she putting on display God's glorious purposes in creating us male and female? If Mary, does her teaching honor her husband and his leadership or does it sidestep it? If single, does her teaching honor the leadership of the church or subvert it? Now, women, I I want to encourage you who are gifted in teaching. I want you to use the gifts that God has given you. And the church is the best place for you to do that. But I also want us as a church to use these gifts in ways that honor the giver of these gifts. And to honor the structures that God has put in place for these gifts to be used. But Paul's not done here. I know that we're running out of time, but I cannot end here. Because the next, the last three verses help us ground this teaching in, in a foundation. So that we know that this is not something cultural that changes over time. Paul provides the reason for this prohibition on why women should not teach or exercise authority over men as elders. Because the question that arises in this discussion, and every time this passage is brought up, the number one question and the ways that people get around it, or sidestep it, or make themselves more okay with it, is because they say, well, Paul is talking about a specific cultural problem. He's talking to this church in Ephesus that Timothy pastors, and it would have caused a whole host of cultural issues if women were the teachers of the church. And so to help protect the church from all these outside questions, Paul says this, but we don't have this problem today. Our culture doesn't view women like they viewed women then, and so therefore this no longer applies to us. Here's the thing. If Paul rooted this in a cultural distinction, then we could make that argument. Culture changes, and we get that. And as culture changes, the prohibition could change with it. But if it's cultural, you'd expect Paul to justify this command by saying something to the effect of, if the church is led by women, then outsiders would question the respect and the the authority of the church, and this would hurt their ministry. That's not what he says. He doesn't point to culture as the basis for his writing this command. Instead of culture, Paul points where? Creation. He points to Adam and Eve. A few things that stand out. Look, verse 13, 14, 15. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. The fact that man was created first establishes the priority of authority in husbands and wives. Because man was created first, men are called to lead. Then he says... Verse 14, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Here's the thing. Paul's not throwing Eve under the bus. It feels like it. I'll be the first to admit that. But Paul is not throwing Eve under the bus. He is not saying that women shouldn't lead because they're more easily deceived than men. I mean, let's be honest, men. Is that really that true? Paige and I had a conversation about this very thing this week in our home where the, the reality is that I am a far more trusting person than she is. And therefore, I am far more easily deceived. Because I am willing to give my trust to anyone who seems like a good person. And Paige always raises red flags. They're like, don't do that. <laughs> what Paul is, is referring to here is that when the serpent, when Satan approached Eve, he subverted the authority of Adam. 
And he undercut Adam's responsibility of leadership by not even going to Adam, but going to Eve first. And Adam sat back and he did nothing. God's good design became twisted in this very moment before the fruit ever was tasted. Paul And so sin entered the world when man abdicated his God-given authority to lead. And Paul is using creation to point out the truth that God's design for male leadership in the home and in the church is good. And that when sin entered the world, it twisted this good design into something God did not create it to be. Now we see that when Paul says that women shouldn't be elders and that he's, he's not saying something that applies only to a specific time and culture. He roots this command in creation, which means that this does not change over time and it does not change with the culture. This applies to the people of God in every place, in every time, in every culture, because it is rooted in how God has created us, male and female. Lastly, she will be saved through childbearing. And I'm running out of time, so let's just skip this and ignore it altogether. I'm not going to do that. If there's a list of the most difficult sayings of Scripture, I think you have to put this one up there towards the top. Does the salvation of women come down to giving birth to children? No. I think what we have to understand, there's, there's two interpretations of this verse, and I think both have merit. First, Paul says, she will be saved through childbearing. That's specific. She, he is talking about a specific woman and a specific child. And again, we can remember the context in Genesis 3 when this promise of a son was given. You will give birth to a son, to an offspring. He will, have, he will crush the head of that serpent. The serpent will bruise his heel, but he will save you, Eve. And so we know very clearly that Paul can be referring to a specific child, to Jesus. He's not talking about pain and labor and delivery and pregnancy and all these things. He is saying that Eve... You were promised to be saved through the birth of a son. And you have been. Second interpretation of this. Because then if you move on into the, it says in verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So there's a, a switch that takes place. Specificity to generality. Now, we've talked about this a lot in previous weeks, but hopefully you know by now, if you didn't know this before, that women are created differently than men. And at the simplest level of clarity, one of the biggest differences between something that women can do that men cannot do is what? Bear children. The potential to give birth. And with that, we know that women have a great ability to nurture life. And to therefore provide an irreplaceable service to both the family and to the church. And so women, God has given you the biological potential to give birth. Whether you have children or don't have children, that's not the question here. But because God has created you as females and given you with and endowed you with this biological potential, he has called you then to support, to encourage, to love and to nurture life, both physically and spiritually. Both in the home and in the church. And this you do through faith and love and holiness with self-control. So here's what all this means. Women are sanctified as they glorify God in the distinct roles and responsibilities that God has entrusted to them. 
Women are saved not through the birth of their child, but through the death of Christ. Men, you are called to lead the church. Not every man is called to be an elder. Let me say that very clearly. Just because you are male does not mean you will be an elder or you must be an elder. Because not every man is called to it. But it is the men who are called. Whether you're an elder or a not, men, you are called to lead the church through prayer at the very least. Lifting holy hands, praying in purity and holiness and peacemaking. And men, if you are not called to be an elder, you are like the ladies called to submit to the elders. Just like little boys are called to submit to their fathers in the home. I'm not calling you little boys. I'm saying the reality is that we're a family. And if you're not the head of the house, you follow the head of the house. Women, you are called to submit and respect the leadership that God has placed over you. Speaking as one of your elders, I do not say this from a position of self-righteousness or, and certainly not perfection. And while I agree with Paul, as we all should, that women are not called to the governing and teaching roles of elder, I do know that the women of our church have a lot to teach me personally. And I am in need of your voice. More than that, the church is in need of your voice. And you have a lot to offer and a lot to say. And a lot to teach. But let what you say and how you serve and how you teach be from a position of peaceful contentedness. Trust the God who has placed the elders over you. Trust them to lead you as God has called them to lead. And help them to do it with your prayers and support, encouragement, and submission. I am way out of time. But are there any questions? Yes. Yes. Yeah, he should have, right? There's a lot that Adam should have done that he didn't. Right? Like as soon as the snake started talking, the snake should have been dead. I don't know how many how many of you would, would go into your garden this afternoon or this spring and find a serpent who began talking to you and say, you know what? Let's have a conversation. This sounds like a great idea. Nope. Serpents, if the serpent starts speaking to you, kill it right there. Yep. How do you handle advocation of men leading the church? Men refusing to step forward and... Yeah, um, I think that we have examples of this in Scripture. I think that, here's the thing, if there are no biblically qualified men to lead in the church, right? If there are no men in the church who meet the biblical standards of elders, we are not putting men in the position of elders just because they're men. I think that we have examples in the Old Testament. Deborah's a big one. Deborah did not lead because God called her to lead. Deborah led because the men of Israel chose not to. And it actually, even though God blessed Deborah and blessed her to lead the people of Israel, it was a punishment to those men. God told Barak, the, the one who was called to lead, who chose not to, God told Barak specifically, Deborah is going to lead the people to victory, and this will be to your shame. We raise up godly men who meet the qualifications of elders in the church. If there are none, we deal with it when we get to it. But... I believe that as a church at Bear Creek, we are not without biblically qualified men who can serve in the position of elder.
Other, other questions? All right, if you have other questions, this is a complicated topic, and it is far beyond 45 minutes to, to teach in. So if there are questions that rise up, please, by all means, feel free to reach out. I would love to talk to you about it. Thanks for coming.